We're talking to Michael Devine in this week's episode of the Voices of Boyle podcast. From his early days growing up in Elfin Street to meeting his wife at a dance and moving to London, Michael takes us on a journey with him as he recalls some of his greatest memories. Highlights include adventures at the train station, hideouts and hiding his bow and arrow from his parents. We talk about his mother's reputation for providing great meals and the role she played in the community back then. We also talk about the dance that changed his life forever and his work and personal life in London. Boyle comes back into focus once again as we talk about his involvement in the town and the beautiful home that he and his wife transformed. So let's get going by welcoming Michael. So we'll start off by saying a big hello to Michael today and thank you so much for having us, Michael, and welcoming me into your home. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure to meet you and I'm delighted to be able to talk about Boyle. Ah, brilliant, Michael. Well, we're just going to have a chat today about uh, some of your own memories growing up in Boyle and later on moving to England and then coming back to live in Boyle. Um, So we'll take things right back to the early years, Michael. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about where you were born and where you grew up? I was uh, born in Garden Hill Nursing Home in Sligo, but brought up in Elfin Street. Elfin Street is on the south side of the town and it's just from our back door, 100 metres. It was 100 yards back in those days to the railway station, which I spent much of my growing uh, time watching the shunting of the various goods trains and cattle trains. One of the uh, station masters there was a man called McCarran. And we got to know their uh, children very well and had privileged access to many places of the station that normally you wouldn't get. We also managed to get the odd lift on the engine itself. So it was good fun to sit there and observe the trains and also travel on the engine. We were only around seven years old at this point, so it was a great thrill. Jeez, fantastic. Because that, that was basically then your, your playground. That was one of our playgrounds, yes. Amazing. And uh, a couple of people actually, Michael, have mentioned throughout our time doing the podcast how important the railway was back then. Oh, the railway was big business. Uh, we had uh, fair days uh, where hundreds of cattle would be shifted uh, by train either to Mullingar or to Dublin. We also had uh, Candon's uh, warehouses, which uh, had supplies come in from all over the country, came down by train and were shunted into his own private line, which ran into the warehouse. We were fascinated by this because the wagons had to be juggled. Uh, When they were empty, they'd go forward and another one would come in. Then they would have to switch them around so the empty one could be pulled out. And it was great fun watching the shunting in and out of his sheds. Uh, At that time, uh, we could sit at the end of the platform and allow the wagon to come right up to our feet because we had the different uh, bolster 
preventing the wagon from crushing us. But it was a thrill to do it. Oh, I can imagine. (laughs) (laughs) And you were only seven back then, Michael. We were only seven Seven. and eight. uh, And those were the years where I discovered uh, feelies as well. Uh, I spent as much time in feelies as I did in uh, our own house. Uh, It's a remarkable thing to remember when compared with today, we could leave the house at 10 o'clock in the morning and not reappear till 2 o'clock in the afternoon and nobody worried about us. Yeah. It wasn't, um, it wasn't a dangerous place to be and our parents realised we were up the fields exploring and having adventures as we do. And uh, Barry was my closest friend at that time and indeed has remained so for many, many years up to now. Uh, we explored every field, both sides of Great Meadow. We knew every hedgerow and we had hideouts where we could store our bow and arrows so our parents wouldn't find them. <laughs> uh, we had also great fun on a mound of turf mould that must have been a 100 years old at the back of one of Candon's fields, right at the opposite of the railway station. It was uh, so old it had turned to limestone on the bottom, but we used to dig into it and we'd have fun attacking it. One of us or some of us would defend it and some would attack it. And uh, the object was uh, to either defend successfully or attack successfully. A little bit like paintball is today, but we were much before our time. Jesus, so. amazing. And uh, I suppose back then, just different times, you made your imagination. You just, you know, no video games, no yeah. play centres. You just had your backyard, the neighbourhood and the yeah. adventures that you created yourselves. That is it. It was make-believe mm. to the nth degree and we enjoyed it. And we, we also did uh, the usual things that young 10-year-olds and we scrumped for apples. We didn't need, we didn't need to pinch apples from anywhere. Feelys had an orchard. My grandmother had an orchard. It wasn't the apples we wanted. It was the thrill of pinching them and sneaking <laughs> in. And uh, we might take a pocket full of apples and take them to one of our hideout caves up the fields. And then we'd eat them at our leisure. But that was life back then. I remember um, Stuart's Orchard myself when I was younger and you'd get the crab apples. And should they be so bitter that you'd eat so many of them, but the pains in your stomach afterwards. (laughs) (laughs) But you'd still do it. (laughs) You did. Yes, you did have to know which tree to go for. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. Well, I never knew the right ones anyway. Um, They're great stories, Michael. And uh, it was actually Carlo that had talked to Barry and Barry Mm. had mentioned some of uh, your escapades as well when you were younger. So it's great to get your account on the stories as well. And I suppose just to, uh, while we're on the topic of those years, uh, your school days, Michael, have you any standout memories of those? Uh, well, I had uh, a good introduction to education at the uh, convent school. We had low infants, high infants, first class in the convent. Mm-hmm. 
And then I went to Deer Park School where my Aunt Lily, that was my mother's sister, uh, was teaching. Now, she was a brilliant and highly regarded teacher and it was a, a great honour to have been sent to that school for uh, just over a year. It's interesting uh, to point at that time it was a single-room school. It had nine-year-olds in the front row and in the back row there were teenagers studying for their civil service exam or preparing for boarding school for which they had to do entrance exams. Wow, so that was some mix, wasn't it? That was some mix in a single-room school with uh, a very small area. One of the amusing things uh, there, Lily didn't sing but singing was on the curriculum and she had one of the teenagers, I believe it was uh, either Paddy McDermott or Tom Wynn who could sing, getting them to do the music lessons. So they'd be on the board and they'd write the names of a song and then teach the class how to sing it. And she'd step back. And she'd step back and allow them the freedom. <laughs> great, great responsibility for them, though, at that age to, to do that. It was. You now, we, we used to get a lift there. Bear in mind, uh, it's three miles outside the town. It's, it's where Green Street, if you continue it, mm-hmm. meets the old Sligo Road. Right. So right up the mountain. Right up at the top of the mountain. And in the wintertime, we used to get uh, a taxi. Paddy Byrne on the Shillin Hill had a Rolls Royce, if I remember rightly. It was also used for funerals, so it had a double purpose. And they, uh, about five of us, used to go out in that Rolls Royce to Deer Park. And in the winter, we'd get picked up as well. But in the summer, we'd walk home, and the Sligo Road was tarred. No tarmac Adam, it was just tarred, and uh, pebbles put on it. So in the sunshine, the tar would bubble up and we'd be dipping our toes in it and bursting the tar bubbles. So by the time we got home, our legs were covered in tar and our mothers would have to, <laughs> to wash the tar out. off oh, God. W- with margarine. <laughs> with margarine. <laughs> margarine And it came trick. off with the margarine. It came off with the margarine. And how long would it have taken you, Michael, then, to get from, from school home to home at that stage? Oh, best part of an hour. It would do, yeah. yeah. Because we yeah. weren't in a hurry. We were wandering Strolling in, along. Strolling along. I remember we used to blow the foxglove flowers, uh, burst them, blow them like balloons into it and pop them. We didn't realise then that uh, they were digitalis and they were actually poisonous. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing the things you got up to, though, isn't it? Yeah, it was fun. You know, yeah. and... Um, your brothers and sisters then, Michael, how many brothers and sisters do you have? Uh, well, we have, uh, Dermot is older than I, so Mary, who's a nun, yeah. uh, Dermot, myself, Tom and Willie uh, were the So that's five? Family, yeah. Five. And did they all go to school, were they all up in Deer Park School at the same time as you? Uh, Mary used to get a lift on Lily's bicycle. But bear in mind, at that time, there was a house directly across the road from the school and the teacher 
had the privilege of living in that house. Okay. So the house went with the job. Okay. And did Lily live in that house then? And Lily lived in that house. But when they came into town, Lily gave Mary... Mary stayed in that house as well. Ah, lovely. So she used to get a lift back in then on the weekends. So... uh, Interesting, isn't it? And like, I suppose back in those days, like now we think of those distances as nothing. Like, you just... You pop in a car and you're there. Exactly. And we travel so much these days that it seems like nothing. But back in those days, it was a good long distance. It was a long walk, yeah. And uh, Sister Mary is obviously Michael's sister. And a lot of people Mm. would know Sister Mary from the school. Oh, yeah. Sister Mary taught in Sister Mary Divine. Yes, Uh, she taught in uh, Castlery. She taught in Roscommon, in Athlone and in Boyle. She did. And uh, she her speciality was maths. And I have met some of the students over my time that were taught maths by Mary. And they said up to her teaching them maths, they hated maths. But when she got to teaching them they love math yeah she was very good because yeah. I she was there in my time as well and she was very very good yes yeah and a lovely lady <sighs> lovely lady gentle person yes Ge- yeah exactly yes. and I think I had a lovely quality about her in terms of how she'd um uh describe things and teach things it was never like just forcing it down your neck she'd be very very understanding Yes. Very understanding. Yes, I'm very patient. Very patient. That's the word I was looking for, patience. (laughs) (laughs) It's an interesting thing, but uh, back in uh, the day when Mary was in uh, the final year in the convent, uh, she was a year ahead of where she should be uh, because she was a clever little girl, I guess. (laughs) There were, uh, in the eighth class, Sister Colin Banners used to prepare people for the civil service. And uh, it was said at one point, you can't go into a department in the civil service without finding somebody from Boyle. So they had a great reputation for uh, preparing for the civil service exams. Right. And Sister Colin Banners got great plaudits for that. Right. Never knew that. Well, there you are. Boyle is a... A hub of education. <laughs> yes, yeah. And just on that topic, uh, Michael, before we hit record here, you told me that your brother was the first priest to be ordained in Boyle. Yes, in 1968, uh, Tom was uh, studying with the uh, Spanish Augustinians and he started off in Honiton in uh, England and then went to Fuenterabia in northern Spain And uh, he got uh, permission to have his ordination in Boyle. And uh, the director uh, of the Augustinians came over as well for that ordination. And uh, he had, (laughs) much to his uh, surprise, he was asked to address the uh, townsfolk. And here's a photograph of him on the back of a trailer. Outside Kavner's shop, which is now, uh, of course, uh, not a butcher shop anymore. It's the offices of uh, the O'Dowd solicitors. Oh, wow. I'm just looking at a picture here. Michael has just handed to me. We'll um, 
post it uh, in the blog post, but it's Michael's brother, Tom, and he's standing up on the back of a little lorry addressing the crowd. And he's actually making the sign of the cross with his hand. Yeah. Look at the crowd, Michael. And that's Michal O'Callaghan on his right hand side. Right there. hand side. Yeah. He was the editor of the uh, Roscommon Herald. Wow. So it was a big affair. It was a big affair, yes. And you can just see the little heads of the little kids looking on, uh, yeah. w- listening to everything. And a very amusing side wow. story, apart from the uh, excitement of the ordination. Uh, an uncle of mine, uh, a first cousin of Agnes's, asked me to do a 35 mil recording and he handed me the cine camera and I said, I've never used one of those in my life. I've no idea what to do with it. And he said, all you have to do is point it and press the button. <laughs> and I said, is it all set and ready to go? Now, this gadget had two headlamps on it, two spotlights. And I stood for a whole hour pointing these two spotlights with my hand on the button, whirling away. And when I was finished... <laughs> we discovered the lens cap had been left on. Oh, no So we way. got no cynic. <laughs> oh, no way. <laughs> and so, I, I accept no responsibility. Oh, well, in fairness, you weren't told to take the lens cap off. <laughs> so I was never a photographer. <laughs> oh, <laughs> rule number one. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, so that's a great story, Michael. And uh, we'll post that photo for people to see when they're reading the blog post. <laughs> So they're, they're the early years, I suppose, your brothers, sisters, um, your escapades up around Elfin Street and the railway. Well, of course, I went from Deer Park School to another school. I went to the boys' school in McMoyne. In McMoyne, right. And I did, uh, we had uh, two years there, one with uh, Paddy Kennedy. That was the uh, fourth year and the third year was a Master Tarpy. And then the next year was going to be with uh, Master Mannion. But it happened at that time that the teacher called Benny Tiernan had just qualified and she was assigned to Kilty Creighton School. Mm. And a lot of, uh, well, about eight of the mothers decided that they'd like their children to be taught by the new teacher in Kilty Creighton. So I was sent off to Kilty Creighton and we used to walk in the snow and in the rain and any other weather to Kilty Creighton, which was another good hike. Again, that's a long journey, yeah. But, but we had been trained. <laughs> mm. The walk wasn't a bother, but getting to school on time sometimes was, uh, particularly if there was a distraction on the way. Mm-hmm. Which there often was, which there I'd often say. was. Because uh, we'd, we'd start off, we were at the south end of the town. We'd walk down the town and as we progressed through out Patrick Street, other people would join us. So by the time we got onto the uh, Ballymoat Road, if you like, or the Mount Moyne Road, there was probably seven or eight of us. And, and so you'd uh, have to stop a couple of times on the way. And, and would you walk to school and home from school, Michael? To and from, from yes, yes. And on the dark winter mornings? 
the dark winter mornings made no difference. Mm. A foot of snow made no difference. Mm. You walked. But you had a good pair of boots with, with nails, studs in them. Great for sliding. And, of course, that was a distraction in itself. And you had the school uniform as well. Did you have school uniforms? Oh, no, we didn't have school, no school uniforms. uniforms. No, no, back then. Wasn't as formal back in those days. Mm. But we all did tend to look alike anyway. Yeah, there wasn't the variety like no. we have today. <laughs> and uh, the, the school in Kilty Creighton, for people that don't know, Michael, is out by where Jerry McGlynn lives, out that road. It's on that road, yes. Where the old dump was. Yeah, if people... Um, We'll walk down that road, although mm. the school isn't there. There are two stones which have girls and boys written on it. And they're still there on the side of the road. Right. And uh, why why girls, boys? What was Because the... that was a two-room school and all the girls were in one half and all the boys were in the other half, up to a, an age where... Uh, the teaching had to be mixed in the final year because uh, there was a Mrs. Mannion who uh, taught on the girls' side and uh, Benny Tiernan taught on the boys' side. Uh, but when it came to the final uh, bit, Benny Tiernan was better at teaching some of the subjects, so any girl that was sort of... Uh, 12 or 13 would be sent into the other class for some of the lessons. Not right. all of them, but some of them. Now, Benny Tiernan was a beautiful woman. She could have been a film star in looks. And the first thing she did every morning, bear in mind, she came out on a scooter. Um, uh, not a scooter as such, but an NSU quickly bike, you probably remember them more like a, bi a big bicycle with an engine yes and um, the first thing she'd do when she took off the uh, weatherproofs would sit down at her desk and put her makeup on and we were fascinated by this uh. and that was when you school was starting when the makeup was on <laughs> <laughs> oh they're lovely memories yeah. and she was obviously as you said only newly um you just qualified. Qualified. So I suppose yeah. she brought a whole new set of ideas and probably things like that into the schooling system. Yes. Yeah. She was modern. She's modern, exactly. Yeah. And uh, that, that was good. And uh, then your mm. later years, Michael, then um, you was so that brought you up to sixth class. Now, if we went from there. Uh, some uh, Franciscan uh, missionaries uh, called out to Kilter Creighton School and uh, gave... Uh, the big cell and uh, wanted people to uh, come and join their fraternity in their uh, Clara school and uh, I of course been a very impressionable young guy put my hand up and said I'll have some of that <laughs> and ended up going to a school in Clara in Offaly right uh, Franciscan brothers now it wasn't uh, it wasn't the greatest place to be, but uh, it was away from home and an adventure in itself. Yes. And one of the things that uh, stand in my mind, which put me off it a bit, was in the potato picking season. And bear in mind, potatoes don't have a strict season, but in their season, when the potatoes were due for picking, they had a tractor 
with a spinning gadget on the back which ripped up all the potatoes from the drills and then the whole student fraternity followed the tractor with baskets picking the potatoes up. So it was like a cheap form of labour. Yeah. <laughs> Slave labour, dare we say. <laughs> so I didn't enjoy that a great deal. So after uh, a year of it, uh, I said to my mother, um, I don't want to go back there. And at this point, my brother was in Black Rock uh, in the Scholasticate. So they um, pulled some strings and I got to start in Black Rock in 1953. Uh, I started in January because I didn't go back after the first term to Clara. And uh, I had uh, a great time in Black Rock. And I have, <laughs> interestingly, the first certificate uh, I had in Black Rock, I've still got it. And the reason I've got it is when we got these certificates, my mother never gave them to us. So we never actually got to see them. Oh, she <laughs> kept them aside, Michael. So that's... <laughs> That's the one in 1954. She was keeping them safe for you. She was keeping them safe, yeah. But she was very much into education and she wanted to make sure all her children were well educated. And it has your subjects listed there as well. It has the subjects. Yeah, brilliant. And the reason I mentioned these certs is that this is the intermediate cert yes. in 1955. And I never saw this at all. Until? It, until... 2000, when Mary was going through Mammy's effects and came across a box of papers in the loft on oh. the Crescent, in the house in the Crescent. So you'll see there, that's the intermediate cert. These are all the past subjects. Yeah. And there, I've got an honours. And I didn't know that I got an honours in the in, intermediate in, cert until the year 2000. Oh, stop, Michael, <laughs> in science. And look how pristine it is. It's like it was printed yesterday. Oh, it's well kept. <laughs> That's lovely. And you know what? Um, it was, I think, um, a message, a sign of how proud she was oh, of the certs, that she had treasured them so much to keep them all aside in a box safe and, and not let you at them <laughs> not let us at them no <laughs> they're great they're mighty to have brilliant to have we might take a picture of that as well if you don't mind and, and post that no I don't that. mind at all uh, yeah at all. and then we have the leave certificate and the matriculation god she kept them all Michael kept them all now I took the leave insert and the matriculation sets with me to England uh, because I thought there might you might need them. Asked. I only was asked once. <laughs> For the leave insert. For the leave insert, yeah. So, um, although it's important to have them. Yes. All you have to do is say you have them and people trust you to... To follow through. To follow through with it. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yes, that was an uh, interesting point. <laughs> Yeah, so that brings us then up until your your finishing of school, and then you left Michael to go to England. Now, before uh, we jump there, there's a v most important part of my life. Yeah, and that's Boyle Tennis Club. Right. Okay. Tell us a bit about that. Now, uh, I was sort of uh, about thirteen uh, when we joined the tennis club. Before that. 
I never went down to the bottom of the town unless I was on a message or visiting Divine Condlins. Uh, there was never any need to go down because all my life was the railway and feelies. But come the day when Mammy said, you've got to learn how to play tennis, so we went and joined, my brother and I went and joined the tennis club. And uh, there wasn't so much coaching there, but a lot of encouragement. So we learned how to play and became reasonably useful at it. And uh, when I was uh, 17, I was reasonably good because I represented Boyle on the junior team. And the same year, because of an illness, I also represented him on the senior team. Fantastic. As a 17-year-old. Yes. Now... The reason I mentioned that link is mm. because it was through tennis that I met Mary, my wife. Oh, OK. Well, then it's very significant. It is. Most significant, most significant. in my life. Yeah. So you so, met her in the tennis club. Was she, in, was she a member? No. No. She was actually living in Ballina. And we were playing Ballina on the junior team in uh, July. And we always went to a dance after the match. Whatever place there was a dance, we would go to it, even if it meant driving through Boyle and going to Castlereagh. If there was a ma- tennis uh, match on, we would go to a dance afterwards. But as it happened, there was a, tennis, uh, there was a dance in Boyle, er, I beg your pardon, there was a, dan- a dance in Ballina, mm-hmm. and uh, we went to it, and... I wasn't a great dancer. In fact, I was probably a bad dancer. But <laughs> I saw this uh, blonde lady there and I said, oh, I must talk to her. So I went over and asked her to dance. And we danced and uh, I asked her if I could see her home. And uh, she didn't live too far away. So I saw her home. And uh, that was more or less it. It was just a peck on the jeep, more or less. But two weeks later, I was down again in Ballina with the senior team and we went to a dance in Ballina that night and I met Mary again. Mm-hmm. And there's a story behind that because Mary wasn't actually at that dance, but a friend of her was and she saw me, went back to Mary's house and said, oh, that Boyle man Michael is at the dance and Mary immediately changed, got her half crown for admission and came to the dance and she said, I walked past you to see if you'd notice me and if you didn't notice me, that would have been it. But you did notice me. Oh, <laughs> Michael, that's a lovely story. <laughs> and then we, uh, uh, I was then going to London for an interview Auntie Agnes had got me an interview with the Canadian Bank of Commerce. And so I was going over to uh, London for the interview. And when I got there, the interview was no problem. But the day I was leaving Boyle, the postman handed me a letter, which I read on the train. And it was a letter from Mary telling me that she'd be in London on holiday in the middle of September. So now I'm going to London for an interview and I've got to uh, extend it for a couple of weeks. 
to uh, wait on to, to see her. <laughs> to wait on. But uh, I was lucky in as much as uh, Uncle Jack, that's uh, my mother's brother, and his wife had a house in London, and I went and stayed with them and arranged to meet Mary in Trafalgar Square. Fantastic. And what and month did you go for the interview then, Michael? How I went in September. Oh, you went in September. Oh, yeah, the interview was in on the 5th of September or thereabouts, and she was arriving there about the 9th of September. Fantastic. So that was just things aligned then. It sounds like just things no, worked out. That's absolutely. The, yeah. As they say, the planets were in alignment. <laughs> it was fate, kind of. And how old were you then? I was coming on 18. Coming then. on 18. And yes. how old was Mary? Was she? Mary was 19. 19. Yeah. And then, so that saw the two of you in London. Now, so, she went back. Yeah. Uh, she went back uh, after a holiday. And I had a letter from the Canadian Bank of Commerce uh, as I wouldn't be going to Canada before February or March the next year. They said, we want you to work in the bank in London and get some experience before you go. Mm. So they gave me a letter to any bank to whom it may concern. If possible, please employ Michael J. Devine as a clerk uh, on the basis of training. So I went to several banks and they all said yes, but they didn't pay enough. Mm. Uh, the salary now is going to sound ridiculous. I'll mention it now. It was £3 a week. I mean, you leave a bigger tip on a restaurant table today. I know. Uh, but that was what the bank was offering. So as my digs were going to be £2.50 a week. Oh, God, Michael, it wouldn't leave you with the was, whole pile. It was £2.10 shillings back then. Wow. <laughs> so I had to decline that and I got a job with uh, Great Western Railway at Alien Broadway Station. So I was a booking clerk for 18 months. And then I, le I left that uh, to e expand my knowledge and I went into uh, the accounts department in a well-known uh, chocolate maker, Nestle's. <laughs> oh, with Nestle? So, oh, okay. And how many years were you there then? No, I didn't stay long Oh, you there. didn't stay long? No, I stayed there for about six months and got the basic uh, knowledge I wanted. And then I decided that engineering would be more entertaining. So I enrolled in a night, uh, night school in Acton and studied uh, technical drawing so I could get into that. And in the meantime, Mary decided to come over and work in England, in London. And I got her uh, an apartment. Herself and her aunt came over. And uh, she got a job... Uh, Almost the following day, it was easy to get a job if you were qualified in anything in those days. And Mary was a very good shorthand typist, so she had no problem. And I was doing my night school, so uh, we did our socialising between six o'clock and eight o'clock. <laughs> <laughs> in the evening. <laughs> and then uh, I needed to find out what... A factory was like mm -hmm. and the only way you could do that is work in one mm -hmm. so I knew we used to babysit for the personnel manager at the factory in Acton and I told him my dilemma that I wanted to work in a factory and he said well would you work nights and I said yeah 
So I did three months working nights in a factory. A, it paid more money and we needed money when we were getting married. And B, it was the sort of factory I wanted to get knowledge of in terms of machinery. Uh, I obviously stood out like a sore thumb because when I handed my notice in, in due course, the foreman said to me, I knew you didn't fit here. You never got involved with those blokes and their dirty photographs. (laughs) 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 And I I was, I don't know whether I was flattered or amused by that. But uh, anyway, we got married uh, shortly after that and I got a job as a, a purchasing clerk in Vanderbilt Products. They used to have the Van Wall racing car back in the 50s. Sterling Moss used to drive for them. And uh, I got to meet Sterling Moss. I was back in 1960. And I was there for many years. So uh, that brought me... Uh, I did five years and then thought I need to do some selling experience just to knock the edges off. So I did uh, 18 months selling uh, Wayne Scales. Hmm. Bit now, different. Wayne Scales was a new experience, but I did manage to uh, successfully convert a lot of stall holders from the old beam scales to fan scales, which were much more efficient. And... Uh, I was doing all right at that when I got a letter from my previous company inviting me back to take over as head of the department that I'd left. So I couldn't refuse that. So, you took that back then, So I then, went Michael. back there again. And, uh, and were you there yeah, for a couple of years then? I was there for another eight years. I became their uh, raw materials buyer uh, because... They made shell bearings for car engines and they involve uh, steel, bronze, tin and many, many different metals which they bought by the hundreds of tons mm. uh, and I was their uh, principal buyer and that went on uh, for till 19... In 1980s, then they switched. Uh, Globalisation took over and Vanderbilt got bought out by GKN and GKN transferred the factory to Poland and closed the one that I was working in. So I had to find another job. So I went working for other steel companies, uh, but nothing as enjoyable as the work at Vanderbilt. Mm. That was excellent. And it sounds by that stage you had such a broad range of experience. I could do anything. You could do anything. That's right. <laughs> and at that stage, Michael, how many years in total? So you left you left Boyle that time and went to London. How many years did you spend in London yourself and married? Well, I came back in 2000. So 56 to 2000 is uh, 44 years. 44 years. Yeah. A long time. A long time. A long yes. time. Yeah. And you obviously had the kids over there as well. We had the children over there. Uh, we had seven children in total, so it was a full-time occupation. Uh, and did Mary give up work to Mary look after up, the children? Yeah, Mary gave up work. She was a full-time uh, mum, needless to say. Yeah. Uh, but uh, she did want a big family. Yeah. Uh, she came from a family of six, and uh, 
when she had six, uh, well, she went one better. Yeah, <laughs> just to make it a little bit more interesting. <laughs> yeah. But uh, all our children uh, were successful in their schools and they were all, uh, they've all got their own houses, they've all got good jobs and uh, we're delighted. One of them, Andrew, died. He's in Asilin. Oh, uh, nice. 1917. I have a... Uh, oh, I can't move. Yeah, you can take that off, Michael. Don't worry. Oh, yes, God, he's a handsome man, isn't he? Uh, he had been... Um, he had been to Australia to see his brother Richard. Mm. And that's why he's got that hat. He was in Australia uh, at the time. Yeah, that photograph was taken in Australia. So uh, when we brought... Uh, we had a... He died suddenly. He was walking down the road to the shops and he collapsed. He was taken to hospital, but he was dead in an hour. And um, we went over, obviously, uh, for the funeral. We had a cremation. When we um, had the funeral, two of his brothers came over. And that photograph behind you there, we put on the the hats. Oh, bless. And held the photograph (laughs) of him with the hat. Uh, as a sort of commemoration. Oh, <laughs> so. And how old was he, Michael? He was just 48. 48. Yeah, he was uh, young. Mm. Young. Uh, but um, he had a good life. and uh, Striking young man. Yeah, mm. he was strong. He had hands like spades. Mm. <laughs> and Michael, the kids now are split between Australia and England. Yes, we've got one, he's married to an Australian girl that he met in London and they decided after they were married that they'd go back to Melbourne and they've gone back and they've got two kids uh, there, another Michael and a Thomas Uh, and his wife is uh, Samantha and she uh, works in uh, eye surgery. Uh, So they're, uh, they're they're happy, they've got everything they need. And uh, oddly enough, uh, all the others, except for my youngest daughter who lives in Eastbourne, but all the others live within five minutes of each other in West London. Wow. So they have their own little community over there. And isn't it great that they're that close? Yes, they they live in uh, Northolt, Hayes and Greenford, which is all part of the greater London so yes, and they're all uh, they're all happy and they all enjoy life. Fantastic. And I go to see them every year and they come over here. So we have a good interchange. It's a holiday, you know, when yeah. you just when you get away and you're in a different environment yes. and there's people there to make you a cup of tea, isn't it lovely? It is. If yeah. you look behind you now there you'll see a picture. That's a bunch of us taken in uh, at a Christmas holiday. So you'll see the, the little ones and the bigger ones. The there's, great gang. There's a lot of us. The great there's gang, There's a lot of it? us. <laughs> great gang and everyone's smiling. Yeah. Lovely. Uh, earlier on, we said we'd mention hotels in yes. Royal. Let's touch on that, Michael. So we uh, do. The reason I mention this is that there's another first in it. <laughs> now, the hotels that you will know, the Royal Hotel, the... Central Hotel, you might not have heard of. No, and I don't think I've even heard of the Central Hotel before. No, the Princess Hotel. Yeah, I remember that one. You know that one. Yeah. And Lynch's Hotel. 
and the Rockingham Arms Hotel. Now, there's a link there with the Rockingham Arms Hotel back in 1917-18 period was owned by Charles Devine, who was the first cousin of T.J. Devine, who had Devine's shop on Patrick Street. And the Central Hotel, I've always known the building as, uh, when I was a youngster, as the Northern Bank. But it's that building on the corner of Patrick Street up to Bridge Street next to Bowles's. It was Pyramid Betting a short while yes, back. Yes, it was. Well, that was the Central Hotel. Right. Uh, now, back in the 1917 election, the uh, it was referred to as uh, the election of the snows because of the weather. And I'm indebted to uh, Father Thomas Flynn for the information I've got about the Central Hotel. But uh, after the T.J. Devine was one of the candidates and Count Plunkett was the other winning candidate and Jasper Tully was the candidate who came third. Now you'll see the plaque on the courthouse crescent saying Count Plunkett. Now that count was a papal count. He wasn't a member of the aristocracy. Right, OK. Uh, now Count Plunkett won the election... Uh, by a considerable majority, by about uh, 1,700. Uh, T.J. Devine, he got 3,000 odd, T.J. Devine got 1,700, and Dash got a smaller uh, number, 600 and something. But uh, Arthur Griffiths was there at the count, and Arthur Griffiths is the man who founded Sinn Féin way back in... 1907 and he after the count he retired to a meeting to the central hotel and it was at that meeting that uh, Sinn Féin sort of hijacked Count Plunkett Count Plunkett was an independent but he got absorbed into the Sinn Féin over a period but at that meeting in the central hotel the decision was taken to abstain from a Westminster representation. So Count Plunkett would not go to Westminster. And that is still the case with Sinn Féin today. They do not send the representatives <laughs> to, to England. Westminster. But that meeting in the Central Hotel was the first occasion that that was brought about. Wow. Oh, God, I didn't know that and I doubt many people listening would know that no. so that was the first time and it all took place in the central hotel yes that that meeting uh, after the count uh, i mean the count as in numerical count yes not the count himself <laughs> <No>. <laughs> so that's very interesting michael now i'm indebted to that information mm. to uh, father thomas flynn who wrote a book called tj divine and the election in the snows and that was all about the election and, that and was all what about came that after particular it. election, yes, T.J. Devine's election. So he uh, pulled out of politics uh, pretty well after that and concentrated on his business. But he was still very much involved in uh, the affairs of Boyle. And uh, he died in 1941, so I never actually met him because I was born in 39. Right, so you're only... 
So it was only two, so I wouldn't have remembered him in any yeah. way whatsoever. And relation-wise to you then, he would have been... He was my grandfather. Your grandfather. Yeah. Right. And I'd say, you know, no more than any of us listening to those stories, you just can't get enough of them to learn, to learn about, you know, his life and what he did and things like that. Yeah. So to have a book written about it was amazing. Yes. Mm. Yes. It's quite an interesting book, which I've got in the room next door. I'll show it to you when we're finished. Yeah, too. (laughs) And Michael, um, so is there anything else you'd like to touch on about the hotels? About uh, that period? Well, when uh, I was growing up, uh, my mother kept uh, lodgers. Uh, that was a way of supplementing the income because it was necessary. Uh, but I often had to go to the Royal Hotel to buy vegetables because the Royal Hotel had a huge garden, walled garden behind it, where the car park is now. That was all Royal Hotel vegetable gardens, fruit gardens. They had orchards, they had berries of all sorts, rhubarb, uh, lettuce, cabbage, potatoes. And my mother used to send me down there because they were always fresh. They were always good. Uh, Same day service. (laughs) And uh, she had a very good reputation for supplying a good meal. I remember um, when she moved from Elfin Street down to the Crescent, first the first house she had on the Crescent was uh, next to Brennan's on the Clues Hall side, not up at the top where she ended, finished up. But there, uh, she was there and there was a very big front room and she converted that to a dining room. And she always tells me that during the Fla Kjol in 1966, for the whole week, they were serving meals 24 hours a day. They were coming in at four o'clock in the morning for a dinner. <laughs> wow. Into the front room <laughs> in the, the house. Front room the house. And they obviously weren't <laughs> lodgers, Michael. They no, were just these were coming visitors in. Coming wow. In. Yeah. Wow. And, uh, it was extraordinary. Because we actually spoke to Teresa Tarpy lately and like that too. She was saying it was a twenty four hour affair. <gasps> that things just didn't close. No. So your mum would have, the, I suppose, the spuds on all night. Oh, and the meat. And the meat. <laughs> yeah. How she did it is anybody's business, but she was one great woman. <laughs> and to look and after the kids as well, to keep all going. She said, I was so busy. She said, I couldn't count the money. I hadn't time to count the money till the next week. <laughs> <laughs> Just throw it, throw it in a bag. <laughs> well, I suppose back then, Michael, you'd be damn glad. You'd you be absolutely. damn glad to have the people around. Oh, yeah, it was a, it was a, a lifesaver, I'd yeah. say. It was a real shot in the arm. <laughs> yeah. So she was then, I suppose, on that side. And then you mentioned she moved up to the other side of the Crescent. Uh, the house uh, where she is, where she finalised uh, is where um, Mike Smith and Kelly's offices are. Right. That was St Anne's, my mother's right. house. And that came up for sale and Tom Carroll gave my mother uh, a nod saying it's coming up. If you get in quick, uh, you get it. And uh, my, br- my younger brother, Willie, who was studying with Callan's uh, to be a solicitor, uh, said, buy it in my name and then we can get uh, something or other, some sort of grant from us coming county council for redoing the house. 
So uh, a cousin of mine who was an architect came down and looked at the house, said to buy it, and he would then reconfigure it for the purposes of doing meals. So Willie bought the house and uh, Mammy set up her business there. They knocked a wall down and had a very long dining room and uh, could sit, sit about 20 people. Fantastic, fantastic. And, uh, things... Uh, Went from good to better. <laughs> Fantastic. At least she had the space now. She had the she space. She had the space yeah. to bring them in. Yeah. Oh, it sounds like she loved the interaction with the people, though, as well. Oh, you know, she did. That obviously it was hard work, but she kept at it. Yeah. Yeah. And she was a very um, kind hearted person. Uh, at Christmas time back then, uh, obviously there'd be no. Uh, business to worry about because everybody's gone home uh, and uh, she used to invite some of the lonelier people like Stephen Mohan for instance was one Mohan mm. used to live out Tarman Way yeah. uh, and um, the Havana Trio the um, band Michael Francis and Leo Cryan Right. Uh, they lived in that little house where the hairdressers was, the pink house, it's the green house now. Oh, yes. No. Um, what do they call it? Uh, well, Lucia had her hair salon Lucia there for a long salon. time. Yeah, they lived there. And Mammy used to invite them over for Christmas. So there'd be Mary, Willie and these four and, and uh, Frankie Spellman, another one. Uh, they used to call them 40 overcoats. I yes, think. overcoats. Yeah, 40 yeah, coats. 40 coats. So he used, used to go to as well. For Christmas dinner. Oh, wasn't and, that uh, lovely? Yeah, she used to love to do that every Christmas. So they'd come actually on Christmas Day? Yeah, and have Christmas dinner. Yeah. Oh, Which that I was, a, was nice. That yeah. was a lovely streak. You know, she. Mm. I suppose that was her downtime. She didn't have to do that. No, she didn't have you to know. do that at all. No, but it gave her great pleasure to yeah. do it. Yeah, she wanted to do it. Yeah. Yeah. So that was good. And is there anything else you'd like to mention there from your. Well, notes? just when we came back from. Uh, when we came back from England, I, the reason we came back was I was left uh, this uh, house that my grandmother used to own. And then uh, Chris Henry was the last person to live here. Uh, we came over and spoke to Chris uh, about me inheriting it. And we agreed that she could stay in the house as long as she wanted. Uh, but as it turned out, she ended up going into Plunkett Home. So uh, I said to her, um, you know, we only want the garden and... Uh, the house, we don't want the land that goes with it. Uh, so she said, oh, that's grand, I'll, I'll, I'll take care of that. Uh, which she did. And then I got a um, builder to come and have a look at this house and we decided that too much needed doing to it to uh, consider trying to renovate what was here. So we decided to knock the whole thing down, except for the end walls and the front wall. And we've doubled it to a two-storey house. It was a one-and-a-half standard house. And we'd done up the gardens. My wife had great pleasure. She loved gardening and she worked very hard and did it. And uh, we were only here a short while when uh, 
Barry Feely asked me if he would, uh, if I'd come and work for him while his storeman was in hospital for about eight weeks, which I was delighted to do because it rekindled our friendship from uh, way back. And the builders got to work on the house and, uh, well, we can see where it is now. It's uh, what I would call a lovely house, comfortable, cosy, and it goes way back to uh, my childhood memories. It was lovely to come back and keep the house and the family for another few years. You did a great job on the renovation, Mm. Michael. We were delighted to do that. But I would uh, would acknowledge a very good friend of mine, Pat Byrne, out there at Kingsland. He was the man who did the hard work uh, organising people. Because bear in mind, I was still in England when we started this work and Pat was overseeing it for me here and employing the right people to do the right job. Uh, so I'm indebted to Pat for that. He's a, a gentleman. He's huge help then and um, yeah. oh, it's it's definitely worked out. And just as I'm looking out the the window here, you have a lovely view. And before we started recording as well, you showed me some lovely pictures, Michael, of the renovation, which if you don't mind, we might include one or two of those as well, just so that people mm. can see how seamless the renovation was. So much mm. so that Michael got a compliment from the county council. <laughs> Um, saying how, because a lot of the older cottages, I suppose, people would change the front of them. Whereas Michael did a mighty job on just adding to the back of it. But it's very seamless, very seamless. And what did they say to you, Michael, the county council? It was a very sympathetic job. (laughs) (laughs) So we'll, we'll add in a picture of that. And you were also good friends with Bernie Maguire. Yes, uh, yeah. Bernie built his house right opposite me there in 2004 and uh, I watched every brick being built. I watched the bridge being built and uh, kept in touch with him and uh, I remember him coming up to me and uh, asking me if uh, he could uh, pinch a bit of ground either side of the old bridge so he could put a new bridge in. And he thought I was going to say, have a couple of foot either side. But I actually said to him, take as much as you need. I want a decent bridge in front of the house. Yeah, yeah. Make the most of it. <laughs> <laughs> so he built a good big bellmouth entrance to the bridge. <laughs> Fantastic. And Michael, is there anything else that you'd like to talk about that we haven't touched on? I think we pretty well covered uh all all the relevant things. Yeah. Uh, can we just uh, touch a bit on your involvement with the Chamber of Commerce? Because you oh, would yes. have, you know, you'd be instrumental in, in the Chamber. Well, it's a strange thing, but <laughs> stemming from my work with uh, Barry Feely, uh, because I was computer literate, I was useful. And uh, because of that, I was asked to join the Boyle Arts Festival as their sort of office manager. And because of that, I was asked if I'd be interested in the Chamber of Commerce lotto draw. And I can always remember 
a fine lady called Mary Critaro <laughs> interviewing me in the Forest Park Hotel, oh, right. which we didn't mention earlier because yeah. it wasn't there at yes. the time. And I remember uh, meeting Mary Katara and she sat down and asked me a few questions by and large. Uh, you know, was I computer literate and was I, you know, office capable. aware yeah. and capable? And uh, I said yes, yes to the various questions and then I took a pack of cigarettes out and asked her if she smoked. And she said, oh, that's my brand, that's my brand, of course you spoke, and you got the job. <laughs> <laughs> that sealed the deal. <laughs> and I can so, safely say from there on, you have had a great friendship, Michael. Absolutely. Yeah. The, uh, the office uh, wouldn't have been the same without, uh, without Mary. I mean, bear in mind, for the first uh, few months, she had to babysit me into the uh, the whys and wherefores of uh, how the lotto worked and how the tickets were accounted for. And uh, it's not as simple as some people might imagine. Uh, but I designed my own uh, system for bookkeeping and it worked out very successfully. So at the end of each year, when the accounts had to be presented, it could be done seamlessly and it never failed. So uh, I'm happy with my time uh, there. I was very happy to meet the people that uh, ran the Boyle Chamber of Commerce. And of course, if anything ever got awkward, I'd always marry to fall back on. She supported me left, right and centre in all aspects of running that show. And how many years, Michael, just out of interest, were you involved with the Chamber? 17. 17 years. Yes, it didn't feel like 17 mm. until we, I was retiring and we checked it out. So, uh, no, it went seamlessly. And I, I also benefited by meeting a lot of people in the town. Uh, I became known to some as Mr Lotto. Yeah. But, <laughs> but I did meet a great uh, number of the business people and reacquainted and renewed acquaintances all the way along. So it did me more good than probably I deserved. <laughs> yeah, it was enjoyable, Michael. It was enjoyable. Yeah, I'm sure it has its moments, but yeah, yeah. there's a lot to be, there's a lot of good as well with community involvement. Oh, there is, yes. Yeah. Yes, and... Uh, People respect people who are doing their best. Yeah, because that's all you yeah. can do, you know, and it's your time at the end of the day. And there's a lot yes. of effort, as you said, regardless of what people might think. Yes. There's a lot of effort behind the scenes. Yes, there was more to it, more to it than just uh, pushing the tickets around and drawing the tickets. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Which you'd see for a half an hour on a Monday night. That's not all yeah. that went into it. No. <laughs> so, so I think. That's it, Michael. We've we've well touched on. Would you like to actually talk a little bit about um, Divine Conlon's, which we briefly touched on um, there in, in the conversation? But Divine Conlon's was a oh. was. Yeah, you can explain it, Michael, there. Uh, Divine Conlon's was uh, a big household and it had had a nerve centre uh, T.J. Devine had 11 children, I believe it was. Uh, but when he died, Agnes uh, 
took the business over with Jim Conlon, a man from Ballyfarlane, that she met on the way back from America. Uh, Agnes uh, was a well-known singer, and she sang in Radio City in New York in the 1920s. And in 1927, she sang on Radio Chicago's inaugural night uh, on 50 years later, she was back in Chicago visiting Father Willie, first cousin. And Father Willie phoned Radio Chicago and said that the lady who sang on their inauguration night was back in Chicago, would I like to meet her? And Radio Chicago invited her back and she sang the same song again uh, 50 years later. So uh, she had uh, a wide experience uh, in the singing world. But to come back to Ireland to run the business, grocery on one side, a bar on the other. And the uh, one of the main people uh, in that shop was a girl called Imelda Duffy, who became Imelda Haddock in later years. But she was a general factotum almost in the Divine Condon household. She lived in... She cooked the meals, she bottled the stout, she served behind the bar, <laughs> you name it, she did it, and she was a real gold mine. Uh, the bar was a successful uh, business, it had a pot-bellied stove in the middle, and on a winter's day people used to come in and warm their hands on it. It had a well-stocked bar, and it had which some bars had at the time, uh, snugs where ladies could go and have a drink because at that time it wasn't fashionable for ladies to drink uh, or to be seen drinking anyway. So there was two snugs, one inside the bar on the right-hand side and one directly opposite. And the ladies would go in there and pull a little slot over and order their drink, gin and tonic. And when they came to the second one, they'd just put the finger up <laughs> that and was the signal. That was the signal for the next gin and tonic. <laughs> That's gas, Michael. And that was uh, where the well is today, for those that don't know. Yeah, that became the three counties. It did. And that uh, was, a, uh, forget the name, uh, Michael. Uh, Michael Martin. Michael Martin. Yeah. yeah, he had the three counties he there. He had the three counties. Yeah. And, uh, he found a few bits and pieces because they did a lot of work converting the uh, old uh, building to suit their needs and the snugs disappeared and more modern facilities were put in. And, of course, the uh, well now is a beautiful premises and uh, I believe uh, Colette is responsible for most of the uh, changes that were made there. Yeah, yeah. So... Um, so it moves on from it's, the it's moved on. from the Divine Conlon days where the the ladies had their little snugs to now yeah. be in the super modern open plan area. Open plan, billiard table, yeah. snug, uh, pool table. Yes, one of the things I always remember in Divine Conlon's uh, at Christmas time in particular, nearly all the relatives, and there were a lot of them, used to come down and spend uh, a day or two in Divine Conlon's drinking them dry, I might add. Uh, but they'd have a party uh, in the big drawing room they had upstairs, which had a piano. 
and you might have 10 or 15 people uh, sitting around and everybody had to do a turn. And I couldn't sing. I didn't know the words of any songs. And uh, I could be asked to do something and all I'd do is come up and recite a verse of poetry and run away back home as quick as I could. <laughs> <laughs> I, found, I found it a very daunting experience. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but... Uh, there was a lot of talent in their families. I just didn't have it. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't hit that branch. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, Michael, I think that's it. We've touched on everything. Um, fascinating trip down memory lane. And I hope that some of the people listening, you have jogged some memories in their own minds about your younger escapades and later mm. on in Boyle, um, some stories and some characters. So... We'd like to say thank you very much for giving us your time and for chatting to us. Thank you, Florence. I hope it's at least interesting. (laughs) It will, of course. And I'm sure the people that are listening will enjoy it and will appreciate it. Yeah, thank you very much, Florence. Thank you, Michael. And that's a wrap for today. Thank you so much for listening and I hope you enjoyed the episode. If so, we'd really love if you could share the podcast on social media. You can find us on Facebook by searching for Voices of Boyle. We'd also love to hear your feedback and suggestions. So feel free to reach out to us via our website at www.voicesofboyle.com. And finally, we're always looking for new guests. So feel free to drop us a message if you'd like to jump on and have a chat with us. Thanks again and chat soon. <laughs>